This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. How postal workers can ease loneliness and help seniors age in place. And excavating the site of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. After this week's devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria, a new Israeli study shows that fiber optics could save lives in future earthquakes by giving advanced warning of a quickly approaching earthquake. With existing technologies, quakes that begin at the bottom of the sea are not discovered until 30 to 40 seconds after they begin. But the researchers say optical communication fibers could bring a 30-second advanced warning, giving authorities more time to prepare. Good news for older Americans. The prevalence of disabilities among seniors is down sharply from what it was just a decade ago. Researchers say fewer adults have limitations on daily activities like climbing stairs, walking, dressing, and bathing. This suggests millions more Americans could feasibly stay in their homes well into their 80s and 90s. But according to U of T author Esme Fuller-Thompson, the 65 to 70-year-olds in the study are not showing nearly as substantial improvements as those 75 and up. The reason? She says obesity is the likely culprit. The Church of England is considering whether to stop referring to God as he after questions concerning the use of gender-neutral terms were raised by priests. The topic, which has been discussed by Christians for many years, is being explored by two commissions in a new joint project. Any potential alterations would mark a departure from traditional Judeo-Christian teachings dating back millennia and would have to be approved by the Church's decision-making body. A Texas woman who helped make Juneteenth a federal holiday has become the second black Texan honored with a portrait at the state's Senate chamber. Known as the grandmother of Juneteenth, Opal Lee, 96, joined President Biden in 2021 to sign a law commemorating June 19th as the day that Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, with news of the end of slavery. Lee joins the late Texas Senator and Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, who was the first black Texan recognized with a portrait in the Senate in 1973. The speaking circuit has been very lucrative for the former leader of the UK. Boris Johnson has made over $8 million Canadian since leaving office, more than half from speaking engagements, the most recent speeches organized by a New York-based agency. This in addition to speeches delivered in the U.S., India, Portugal, Singapore, and the U.K., 
all since leaving 10 Downing Street. He's also received an advance for his political memoirs from publisher HarperCollins. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a conundrum for older people who want to age in place and their children. How to make sure a senior is doing well when family can't always be there. A new report titled Special Delivery from the National Institute of Aging finds that postal workers could provide the answer. The idea is a service where workers would check in on clients who subscribe along their mail routes. I talked with Dr. Samir Sinha, head of geriatrics at Sinai Health and the University Health Network, and a co-author of the report. Dr. Samir Sinha, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Libby. This is a very interesting idea, how to use the Postal Service and postal workers to help seniors. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so this an idea that's actually not 100% new. In Canada, uh, we used to have postal workers through uh, do a voluntary program called a letter carrier alert program, so that if they saw a vulnerable person uh, who they were serving along their route, they would actually connect with the local community agency to say, hey, I'm a bit worried about Mrs. Smith. She's not picking up her mail or there's other issues. And that still runs actually as a voluntary program in Prince Edward County. But over the last decade, we've seen national postal services like Japan Post or the Postal Service in France or, or that of the, of the Isle of Jersey and, and the United Kingdom actually make these national programs where what they have done is they've actually said, hey, our postal services have the largest fleet of vehicles and the largest number of workers going to every door every day. So why don't we actually leverage these postal workers to deliver a service, a service that people can pay for, that they can have friendly check-ins um, and uh, to help prevent loneliness and social isolation, but also a way that if there are uh, if they are experiencing issues, the postal worker can help actually alert other folks within the health or community care system so that that person can get care in a more timely way. So how would it work? Would a, a postal worker be tasked with checking in on every house? How does it work? Yeah, so so the basic premise is, is that um, the way it works in other countries, for example, again, these are all voluntary programs. And we know that recently in Canada, there was a poll done around this idea that said that over 80% of older Canadians said, we love this idea. And over 40% actually said, hey, if it was around, I'd subscribe to it. So it's a voluntary program. And in fact, in France, they actually call it watch over my parents. So it's actually something that older adults can subscribe to or their family members can subscribe to on behalf of an older person. Um, and it's a subscription service. So you pay uh, for this service. It's a way to generate badly needed revenue by the postal service. And postal workers would then be trained um, to actually provide you know, friendly check-ins. Um, and in the Isle of Jersey, it's a five-minute process that occurs at your doorstep. They ask you five basic questions, starting with, how's it going today, to finally ending up with, is there anybody you want me to pass some of this information along to? And they usually will already have your trusted contact. So they uh, they already can just simply email that information off so that your family members or your other contacts can know um, how you might need some additional support. So it's a pretty straightforward process, but we know a lot of people like it um, because it's, if you're living alone and you're feeling a bit vulnerable in the community, you now know that you may 
you'd not have a family member or friend who lives close at hand, but you've got your postal worker who's got your back. So you would uh, say, I want one check-in a week or two check-ins a week or something like that and pay for each of those? Yeah. So, for example, in the Isle of Jersey, the program has been so successful at reducing hospitalizations and, and other more serious healthcare utilization that their Ministry of Health and Community Services has actually now funded the program where they would actually pay for two visits a week. But if an older person would like more because they like the social contact, they can certainly pay for for you know a, a daily visit if they would like. So it's a it's a service that in in Jersey, for example, is actually subsidized by one part of the government um, to the postal service. Uh, but uh, but for those wishing to have more visits, or in Japan and France, if you want to have the service, it's a subscription. So you pay for those visits um, like you would uh, any other service as well. Would this raise concerns about privatized health care? Not really, because again, you know, Canada Post is a is a is a public, you know, crown corporation. Um, it's one that it's not necessarily it's people pr- paying for a service um, that they would that they would want. But of course, I think what you're emphasizing is the importance that we want to make something like this accessible. Not everybody has, say, maybe ten dollars to pay for a family visit. And so how do we make sure that this is accessible? And that's why in countries like, um, or in jurisdictions like the Isle of Jersey, they've said, look, for anybody eligible, we'll foot the bill for two visits, um, because we know this actually saves the overall healthcare system money, and we want this to be accessible to those who would benefit from it. But, um, but certainly, um, I'm not too worried about the issue of privatized healthcare here. I think this is something that, and this is not necessarily providing healthcare. These aren't community nurses. These aren't people delivering healthcare services. They're just delivering peace of mind, uh, just like you might pay or support a neighbor or friend to actually help um, provide a friendly check-in every once in a while. The Postal Service is, of course, heavily unionized. Have the unions been approached? Has management been approached? Has anything like that happened? Yeah, so in Canada, actually, there was a federal review of Canada Post looking at its financial viability. And that review actually suggested they look into this idea. Uh, and certainly we've engaged Canada Post to, to include them in these conversations. They haven't been um, so cooperative, I'll just say it that way. <laughs> However, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, they love this idea. In fact, they think it's a great idea. They tell us they've been championing this idea uh, because they see this as a great way um, to also give them more things to do, um, protect their jobs, if you will, um, and provide a more valuable service other than just simply delivering people's mail. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, I think it's a great idea worth considering, and, uh, and I'm glad that we've been able to discuss it together. Dr. Samir Sinha, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Samir Sinha, head of geriatrics at Sinai Health and the University Health Network. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up dramatic discoveries in the excavation of Mila 18, the headquarters of the 1943 Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. utensils, books, a child's shoe, 
These are some of the objects discovered during recent archaeological excavations on the site of the headquarters of the World War II Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. The discoveries were made at Mila 18, also the name of the famous Leon Uris novel, and are shedding light on the lives of the hundreds of thousands of Jews confined to the area and the history of the 1943 uprising. I spoke to Holocaust educator Tzvi Sperber after he toured the site. In Poland, of course, the capital city, Warsaw, um, had probably the most important story that takes place certainly within 1943, but the largest Jewish community outside of New York from 1939 onwards. Um, uh, and of course, the Warsaw Ghetto, which uh, tells a story in itself, number one of survival and number two of the rebellion, which will change the course of the Second World War. But for the first time, the Germans could not believe the Jews were actually getting up and fighting back. And that will be the impetus, by the way, for the uh, Warsaw Uprising in 1944 by the regular Polish society. After they saw what took place in 1943, they're going to come and say, you know what, if the Jews did that, with a band of little group of people against 11, 12,000 soldiers at the time, we can do it too. They got terribly beaten, but they at least saw that their importance of actually getting up and rebelling. And what are the new findings? So the main headquarters of uh, the uprising was a place called Miller 18. And uh, Miller 18 will be the end, pretty much, of the, the uprising. There'll be a man known as Mordechai Nilevitz, who will be leading a group called the Zob, the ZOB, which is the Jewish Defense League. There'll be a number of different groups that are going to be fighting in the rebellion. Mordechai Nilevitz... His, one of his final acts will be to go into a very, very large bunker system. And it was like a set of tenant houses. Um, and this bunker probably stretched over three houses. Uh, and to, the main house, because it was number 18 of Miller Street, but it actually stretched over a number of streets. And uh, over the last year or so, pretty much half a year, um, archaeologists, because they were going to build right next to the monument that stands there today of Miller 18, and they were coming to build, they all of a sudden came across the foundations of the house. And all of a sudden, as they were digging down, they came across the basement. And it's the basement which is now starting to uncover for us something we already knew. But if you want, it sort of brings history back straight in front of us Mordechai Nilevitz sent letters. He was, the again, just to remind people, in charge of the Jewish Defense League. He sent letters out to a man called Antik Zuckerman, or Yitzhak Zuckerman. He was outside of the ghetto trying to persuade the Polish Home Army to give arms and ammunition to the Jewish fighters inside the ghetto. And they basically refused to, but he managed to be able to get a few bullets and guns and whatever else. But he, he was writing to him at the time. So we have his letters as well, even his last letter that was written from the bunker of Miller 18. And is there any new information that changes your view of what actually happened? Um, I'm not sure whether information as such. Um, I will say this, it's, it's enforced an idea for us. Miller 18, we know to be a bunker where the Jewish Defense League, who were part of the, the secular Zionist 
Jewish movement. Okay, they were the main group of people there. But we also know the bunker itself had beyond there another large area that had religious Jews that were there as well, who were doing something that we call spiritual rebellion. They were continuing with their Jewish acts. They were continuing learning the Jewish scriptures, the Torah. Okay, they were continuing learning the the oral law, the Talmud. And we know that because of certain things we found. We found pieces of books. We found a uh, candlesticks that Jewish women light, two candles every Friday to welcome in the Sabbath. And we found all sorts of other things like this, which has enforced an idea that the Jewish people, even in the most extreme circumstances, realize that if they hold on to their Jewish values and to things that they've been brought up with, that in itself is going to keep their sanity. Svi Sperber, thanks so much. It was a great honor and a pleasure, okay, to be with you. And, uh, you know, let's, let's keep hopefully passing on the messages of what we learned from that time period. That was Holocaust educator Svi Sperber. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.